We have been dealing with 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. And it's, uh, this is sort of the heavy lifting chapters of the book. Heavy lifting because he uncovers the plan of God for the Gentiles and for the Jews in these chapters. And so we've slowed down in the book of Romans because it's such a great book. Then when we get into chapter 12, it is so applicational and it is so practical that it's just going to be a blast and a blessing to go through. But this requires a little more concentrated study. And to me, these are crucial chapters in our understanding of the plan of God. If you like puzzles, if you like to put puzzles together, and some people just love them, I like them sometimes, and it has to be over a long period of time, like weeks. I, I can't just sit down and put it together. I get very frustrated. But I found the experience of trying to put a puzzle together, and when I get it all together, because it's been in a box and opened a couple times, there's some pieces missing. And that's the most frustrating thing about putting a puzzle together. If you got one that's incomplete and some of the, the most important pieces are missing, it's just hard to get anything made sense of. I heard a story about a dad who came home from a hard day's work, didn't really want to do anything but sit around and veg for a while, read the newspaper, catch up on life. But he had a young son, and dads, you can relate to this. Son saw dad was home, it was time to play. He didn't want dad reading the newspaper. He wanted some quality time and some attention. So he kept bugging in his dad's view, his father. Dad, come on, man, let's play. Give me your time. Give me your attention. His dad said, tell you what, ripped out the page of the newspaper that had a, a picture of the world on it, a globe, and he cut it up in all sorts of little pieces, and he said, here, you put this puzzle together, and when you finish it, then I'll play with you, thinking this is going to take this kid at least an hour. Five minutes it was done. And uh, his dad inquired and said, how'd you do it so quickly? And he said, easy, Dad. On the back was a picture of a man's face. And I know a man's face pretty well, so I just put the pieces of the man's face. And when I put the face of the man together, once the man was together, the world was together. Now, there's a lot of applications in that, and you may have heard that story spun a number of different ways. I contend tonight that the face of the man is the nation of Israel and God's plan for the nation of Israel. And that once we understand that, we see God's plan for the rest of the world come together quite nicely. And that if we don't understand God's view and God's plan for the nation of Israel throughout the scriptures and eternity, we have a tough time uncovering and discovering the rest. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. Of course, God has a plan for you and I as well. But every time we read about God's plan, it seems to be tied into God's future plan for that tiny little piece of controversial real estate in the Middle East. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. In my devotional time this morning, I was in the book of Esther. And my favorite chapter I uncovered this morning, it's the setup, it's the beginning where the plot unfolds and the characters are developed. And you'll remember the story that King Ahasuerus of Persia was sitting on the throne and Vashti, his wife, the queen, was deposed because she spurned the command of the king. And so a new queen was to be inaugurated that just happened to be a lady by the name of Hadassah. They gave her the name in Persian, Star or Esther. 
Esther became the queen. She was Jewish. And a lot of the Jewish people were living in the Persian Empire at the time. A guy by the name of Haman, who was in the court of Ahasuerus, plots against the Jews to have all of them exterminated. We, we mentioned that last week. Have them all killed. Mordecai, who was the uncle of Esther, who happened to be in the court where Haman was, uncovered this plot and told it to Esther. And, and she said, well, what do you want me to do about it? I mean, I know I'm the queen, but I haven't even seen the king for 30 days, and nobody can approach the king because the sentence of the Persians is that your head gets cut off. You get killed. If you walk in uninvited, unless he raises up his scepter, I'm dead. And Mordecai, her uncle, said, do not think in your heart that you will escape just because you're in the king's palace more than all the other Jews. For if you fail to speak up now, your father's house and you will probably be killed. But if you fail to speak at this time, know this, relief and deliverance will come from another place. But who knows, the uncle said, who knows that you're not in this kingdom for such a time as this. That's my favorite phrase in all of that book. You're here at this time, at this place, for such a time as this. God could use you. But I love it that he said, if you don't speak up now, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews from another place. He understood something. He understood that God had a plan for the nation of Israel that would be fulfilled no matter who is going to do it. She's going to do it great, and probably this is a setup by God. But if not, God is sovereign and providential enough that God will fulfill his plan to the nation. What is God's plan for the nation of Israel? Do you remember what it is? It's one little sentence given to Abraham back in Genesis 12. That in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. It's quite a statement, isn't it? I'm going to develop a nation through you, Abe, and it's going to be such an incredible plan that through you and this nation that will be built up, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. What an honor and privilege, what a responsibility, and what a target. Remember we mentioned last week in the context of spiritual warfare that because God develops his plan for the world through a nation, if Satan can destroy the nation, he can ruin God's plan. And so we kind of traced briefly some of that spiritual warfare throughout history. In this section, Romans 9, 10, 11, he's speaking to the Romans. It's a pretty easy one. I, the questions get easy and they get more difficult as time goes on. But it was speaking to the Romans. The book is written primarily to Gentiles. Who here is a Gentile? Raise your hand. Okay. Let me take the other end of that question. Who here is Jewish? You're either Israeli or you're Jewish. There's a couple, a couple hands. Not many of us can make that claim. Most of us are Gentiles. Now that, that was noticed also if we were to take a show of hands in the Roman church and the pastor would say, who's a Gentile? Most of them would raise their hand. That became sort of a problem, you see, the question was posed, Paul, wait a minute. You say God has a plan for the Jewish nation and that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. If that's the case, 
How come there's not many Jewish people who believe in him? Why is it the fact that there's so many Gentiles, non-Jews, that believe in Jesus the Messiah, and here he is Israel's Messiah? Why is that? And so he's been discussing that in these chapters. Verse 11, you know, we touched on some of this and closed. And listen, I'll be glad tonight if I can take you down to verse 25. If I can do that, that's monumental in my view. I say then, have they stumbled? A follow-up question from verse 1. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, or God forbid, as the King Jimmy puts it. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. It was Paul's hope, it was a burden of his heart, that Jewish people would watch non-Jews, Gentiles, as they receive the Jewish Messiah and believe in the Old Testament scriptures and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And they would see all of the blessings that these Gentile believers were having, and it would cause sort of a jealousy. It would awaken them to their need. It does if it's done right. Um, at one time, we used to have a menorah, a seven-branch candlestick on our table in the back. I, I don't know what happened to it, if it's lost or got stolen or whatever. You'd be surprised what gets lifted from a church. But uh, we've had people come in, Jewish people, who said, you have the symbol of the state of Israel in the front of your church. What's that all about? Tell us about that. You take tours to Israel. Why do you do that? You study the Old Testament. We've had Jewish people in town get our tapes on the Old Testament to listen to them. They said, we've never gone through the Old Testament like this. There is a hunger in all people, and even in Jewish people, even though they have been blinded and hardened, as we've already discovered, there is a hunger. I think I've quoted this to you before, but it does bear repeating. One source, a Jewish source, expressing dissatisfaction in Judaism said, quote, We are living in an age where people want something more tangible in their religion. Judaism has always been very abstract. It raises more questions than it answers. The Jesus movement has all the answers. They saw something in these young people in what was called the Jesus movement that was attractive. They've got a handle on life. They understand God's plan through the ages. The Jesus movement has all the answers. Now notice something in these verses that we're uncovering. Uh, some words. Uh, look in verse 11 at the word stumbled. Fall. Verse 12, the word fall again and failure. Verse 15, cast away. Verse 17, broken off. These all describe the experiences of the nation of Israel because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But notice some other words. Verse 11, salvation. Fullness in verse 12. Verse 15, acceptance and life from the dead. Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They've been cast aside temporarily. They have failed because of that as a nation in fulfilling what God wanted them to fulfill. However, all of that casting aside and brokenness and failure is temporary. God has a plan to save, to bring fullness, acceptance, as he puts it here, life from the dead, to restore the nation of Israel. Let's now look at verse 12. Now, if their fall, the fall of the nation, is riches for the world 
and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Think of the great, incredible riches that Israel forfeited when they rejected Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever paused to just consider what happened to them as a nation. Do you remember when Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and overlooked Jerusalem and started weeping over it? And he prophesied about what would happen. He looks over the nation and he says, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but they're hidden from your eyes. And I say to you, the day shall come upon you when your enemies shall build an embankment around you, surround you on all sides and hedge you in, level you and your children within you to the ground, and not one stone will be left upon another in you. They're going to they're tear this city to shreds because, Jesus said, you did not know the day of your visitation. He could see all that was going to come down. He could see Titus and the Roman armies marching into Jerusalem from Rome, setting the temple on fire, taking every stone as literally was fulfilled to get the gold between the cracks that had melted, kill many of the people, level it to the ground because of their rejection. What'd they lose? Temple, land, families. They lost their hope for eternal life when they turned Jesus away. Jesus said at another time, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now that's tragic, but, but, because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, God now opens the door of salvation to anybody, to the Gentiles. Still has a plan for them, we'll uncover that. But he's opened the door to the Gentiles that whoever would call upon him would be saved. Because all the families of the world are to be blessed because of the nation. Now think about that. Before Jesus came, a Gentile, if he wanted to know God, had to become a Jew, had to become a proselyte, had to three times a year go down to Jerusalem, keep all of the festivals, go to a priest, etc., etc. Now, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone, anytime can come to God through his Son. They don't have to go through the priesthood. They don't have to locally go to Jerusalem. They don't have to use the temple structures. God has opened the door to the world. Now, I want you to, I know we've only gone through couple verses, but turn to the book of Matthew for just a moment. Matthew 22. This is all predicted. It's foreseen by Christ. Matthew 22, Jesus gives a parable of the wedding feast. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. He called his servants. His servants weren't willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it, went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized the servants, treated them spitefully, killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, burned up their city. And he said to his servants, 
The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. Okay, I've invited my servants. They won't come. Okay, now send the invitations out to anybody. Just go find people. I want this place filled up. We're going to party hardy in this wedding. Get anybody. It's a parable with a message. The message is concerning the nation of Israel. I probably should have done this before reading chapter 22, but now look back at chapter 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set its hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went to a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive his fruit. The vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent his ser other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. It's pretty easy in retrospect to see what this is about. He sent prophets to the nation of Israel. They stoned them, killed them, etc., then he sent his son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard, which is a metaphor of the nation of Israel, Isaiah chapter 5, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Don't you guys read your Bibles? Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. On whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. All predictive of what would happen, Paul now goes over that. They've been cast aside. It has meant riches for the Gentiles. The door has been opened. The kingdom has been opened to others because the servants have rejected it. Verse 13, back in Romans. For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You know what he's speaking of? A future plan. And God's future plan for the world, dealing now with the nation of Israel, is going to be so incredibly awesome. It can only be described in this phrase, life from the dead. It'll be like a resurrection. It'll be like Ezekiel 37, the vision of the dry bones. That's where we ended last week. The vision of the dry bones, which God said is the nation of Israel. And look at them. They're dry. They have no life in them. But I'm going to breathe 
my breath in them. I'm going to raise them up as an army in the last days, and they'll repopulate their land. Life from the dead. There is a future restoration for the nation of Israel that I believe, and I'm going to preface this by saying this is what I strongly believe is my opinion the Scripture teaches. There are other viewpoints. doesn't mean you're a heretic if you believe some of the other viewpoints. You'll be wrong, but you won't be a heretic. But I want to uncover some of those viewpoints tonight. It's my strong belief that the Scripture teaches that God's future plan for the world includes the literal restoration of the nation of Israel and the Messiah reigning geographically from Jerusalem on Mount Zion for the rest of the nations because it's spoken about in so many places. Now, in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, verse 32, Paul mentions in passing people by dividing them up into three distinct groups. Listen to what he says. Give no offense to the Jews, to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Jews, Gentiles, and the church are all mentioned as separate, distinct groups. And by the way, Paul does treat them that way. So does the book of Revelation. So does Daniel, etc. God has a plan for the Gentiles. God has a plan for the Jews. God has a plan for the church. Many times they intersect, but there is a separate and distinct, distinct plan for each of those groups. We know about Israel. We've talked about that the last few weeks. The chosen people. They've been persecuted throughout history. They've been blinded, as we saw last week. He's writing to Gentiles. He says in verse 13, I speak to you Gentiles. You're not a, of the household of Israel, but you are saved. You belong to God. Anytime a Jew or a Gentile gets saved, he's part of that third group, the church. Remember, Paul said that's a mystery that was kept hidden in the Old Testament but revealed in the New Testament, that God would take Jew and Gentile, bring them together, and it would be a brand new covenant, not a covenant of the law, not a covenant based on race, a covenant based on grace, not race, the grace of Jesus Christ. And he would bring them together into what he calls the church. There's a plan for the church that's different from national Israel and is different from what the Gentiles are all about. Okay. Turn with me to another portion of Scripture, because it all hinges on this, Revelation chapter 20. We went back, we go ahead. I'm having you turn here, because this is a theological hotbed. It's a battleground. It's called the millennium. And in chapter 20, verse 1, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. It's a millennium. He cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, probably in more ways than one, and set a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations. Wouldn't it be great if there was a period there? But there's not. No more till the thousand years were finished. Now, in this chapter, and by the way, you could follow this down into the next few verses, four, but especially five and six, it gives, again, the thousand years. This is the mention of the literal period of time known as a thousand years, or the millennium. By the way, back in the early church, 
if you would read the writings of Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, they interpret this as literal, not figurative, literal. They look forward, and they said so in their writings, that there will come a literal time when the Messiah, Jesus, will return and set up a thousand-year reign upon the earth. That's how the early church fathers saw this. But again, this is a theological battleground. Um, it's pivotal in my view. It's pivotal to understand different views of this millennium because it's pivotal in how you interpret the rest of Scripture. So everybody's worried about Y2K. We ought to understand this millennium that's going to come. I believe it to be very literal. But I want to uncover some viewpoints. There are three major viewpoints about the millennium. First of all, there is the post-millennial view. Easy to understand what that means, post, after the millennium. This means they believe Jesus will come back after a period of a thousand years. Now, this was popularized about 330 years ago by the name of a guy, by the name of Daniel Whitby, who was a Unitarian, and he had some weird views of the Trinity, and basically he taught, and it spawned from his ideology, his theology, that the church will bring in the kingdom. The church will Christianize the world. We'll preach the gospel everywhere. And when we do, we will bring the kingdom in. Once we preach the gospel everywhere, Jesus, there'll be a, a thousand years of peace on earth that we bring in, then Jesus returns after that. It's not so popular anymore. It was popular up until about 70 years ago or so. And people ask, whatever happened to, to post-millennialism? Answer, World War I happened to it. World War II happened to it. Korean War happened to it. Vietnam happened to it. There was an acceleration of wickedness and war upon the earth. So theologian says, you know, I don't think this is a tenable doctrine. I don't think we're doing a good job of bringing any kind of peace. It's getting worse, not better. So that was sort of abandoned until recently. It's resurfaced in something known as kingdom theology. You may have heard it. You may have read books on it. Kingdom theology says, we the church must get all the powerful positions and bring in the kingdom through the body politic. We'll get involved in politics. We'll get all the major positions and we'll present the kingdom to Christ. By the way, though I respect him greatly, that happens to be the view of Pat Robertson of CBA. Um, Christian Broadcasting Network, who said, if I'm elected for president, that's when he ran for president, if I am elected as president, this will be another step into presenting the kingdom to Christ. That was his viewpoint. Kingdom theology, post-millennialism. Position number two concerning this, amillennialism. Easy to understand. Ah means not or without. You have uh, atheist, means without God, or agnostic, without the knowledge that there is a God. Amillennialism doesn't believe there is a millennium, literally. I think this is all figured a thousand years. You know, that's just Bible talk. It's all mystical Bible talk. It's not really literal. This was espoused by Augustine, 4th and 5th century, the Catholic theologian, who looked at the Bible and started spiritualizing it. He looked at a lot of different scriptures and said, I know the Bible says that, but it doesn't mean that. And he looked below the literal meaning of the text and interpreted all sorts of weird ways. He was a good guy. I love him. Very devotional, wonderful guy. But this is what he believed in. The only millennium he said that will ever happen will happen in his lifetime. It's between the first and second coming of Christ 
It's the church age, not a literal thousand years necessarily, but that this is the millennium. Satan was defeated at the cross, bringing in the kingdom, and in a very figurative sense, we're in the kingdom age. Now, I got to tell you, if this is the millennium, I am terribly disappointed. Because this is not what I expected from reading the Bible. If I were to read Isaiah 35, Isaiah 11, on and on and on, the minor prophets, this is not what I expected. And it's inconsistent, by the way, because the amillennialist will say all of the promises that God made to the Jews will not be fulfilled in Israel, literally. They're fulfilled in the church. Because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, that's how they would answer the question in Paul's day. The reason there's not many Jews in church, Paul, there's a lot of Gentiles, is because God's done with Israel. And now all of the promises that God made to the Jews in the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled in the church. The reason that's inconsistent is because there's blessings promised and cursings promised. And they say, well, all the cursings refer to them, literally, and all the blessings refer to us figuratively. I got a problem with that. There's a third viewpoint. By now you figured out that I'm not the first two. There's the premillennial position. Premillennialism says Jesus Christ will return premillennial before a thousand-year reign, literally, of Christ on the earth. That there will come a time of great tribulation on the earth. Jesus will come back, set up his kingdom. It'll last a literal thousand years. Now, within that camp of premillennial belief, there's three more camps. I'm not going to get into them much. You already know what they are. Pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture. All of those are still premillennial. Jesus is going to come back sometime, and when he does, he'll set up his kingdom. I see that as an important thing to believe. And let me tell you why I think this is, this is, this is the way to hang. Number one... It fits the chronology of the book of Revelation. I don't know what your viewpoint has been on the book of Revelation, but I, I would suspect some of you avoid it. It's scary, number one. It doesn't make a lot of sense to you, number two, and probably because you are viewing it every way but literally. You're looking at it, there's no way this could be literal. But to interpret premillennially makes sense out of the book of Revelation. You see it chronological. There's an outline given to John. We have 15 minutes left. We'll never make it. Okay. There's an outline given to John. Write the things which you, the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. That's the outline of the entire book of Revelation. John, write what you see. Write the things that are. Write what you see after these things. That's exactly what John does. First chapter, he writes what he sees, a vision of Jesus Christ. It's a wild vision, but he sees it, he writes it. Chapter 2 and 3, he writes the things which are. writes about seven churches. It's a depiction of the church. Chapter 4 begins with the same phrase. After these things. After these things. What things? The things of the church. I saw a door open in heaven. And a voice spoke with me like the voice of a trumpet saying, Come up here. Immediately I was in the Spirit. 
And from that point on, he writes the rest of the book of Revelation from the vantage point of heaven looking down at the earth. After the church, he's caught up. He sees what happens. Well, what happens after the great anthem of 4 and 5 and all the worship with the angels and saints and elders? Chapter 6 begins the tribulation. The tribulation continues all the way to chapter 19. Chapter 19, Jesus comes back to the earth. That's the second coming. There's a judgment that takes place. There's a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. The earth is destroyed. Chapter 21 begins the opening of the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem comes down. It fits the chronology of the book of Revelation. Second reason, I think, premillennialism is the way to view all this is because the early church did. I quoted Justin Martyr and Irenaeus. These are guys that spoke about this as a literal thing that would happen. And third, the compelling reason to take all of this literally, a literal thousand years, is because there's no other way to interpret the Bible, in my view, except literally. I mean, how can you say, well, we interpret the Bible literally, but we don't interpret prophecy literally? On what basis? Who gives anybody the right to say, this part is real, but this part could be anything? We have no basis to do that. You see, have you noticed in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of numbers, seven churches, there's 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe. Seven heads, there's ten horns, there's twelve tribes, there's twelve apostles, there's a third of mankind, there's two witnesses, there's 42 months, there's 1,260 days, there's 1,600 stadia, there's three kings. What do you do with all those numbers? If, if those aren't literal. In other words, if 12 doesn't mean 12 and 7 doesn't mean 7, what do they mean and who's going to say what they mean? You, you open a Pandora's box. And basically you have to look at all the revelation and say, you know what? God spent the whole book of Revelation telling us what's not going to happen. I don't know what it means, but it's not literal. It's not going to happen. But if you take it at face value, you believe in a literal nation of Israel, a literal Messiah. You believe there'll be a real kingdom for Israel from Jerusalem, and the Messiah will reign over the whole earth and it'll last a thousand years. Okay. Having said that, we're in verse 16 of Romans chapter 11. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. The root is holy, so are the branches. He's using Old Testament stuff. You picked up on that, right? First fruits, that's one of the feasts. They would bring a little portion of the lump portion of the dough and they would dedicate it to God and that was a symbol that not only is this little lump of dough dedicated in this feast of first fruits in this meal offering the whole loaf the whole lump is it's all part of the beginning and the end then he talks about roots and branches if the root is holy the branches are holy okay the lump he's speaking about the little lump that is dedicated the first fruits and the roots it's the beginning of the nation of Israel the patriarchs probably, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of the promises God made to them, those were holy men. But not only are they holy men, but all of the rest of the people of Israel are holy. The word holy means set apart. God has a specific plan for them. 
God gave promises to Abraham, David, Isaac, Jacob. And God will fulfill those promises in the descendants, the branches, and the rest of the lump. So when God's plan is completed for the Gentiles, the church, he will then turn again to work with the Jews. If you've never done a study, and we can't do it now, obviously, on Daniel, the book of Daniel, and especially Daniel chapter 9, it's called the backbone of prophecy. You've got to have the backbone. You've got to understand how the body's laid out. Once you understand the backbone, you'll fit everything in order. Because in Daniel 9, there's a specific prophecy about 70 weeks of years given for Israel, for the holy city, for the Jewish nation. We, in the world, chronologically, are somewhere between the 69th week and the 70th week. There's been a gap of about 2,000 years. The time clock stopped when Jesus died on the cross, as predicted by Daniel. The 70th week of years, or seven years, is left. That will be the tribulation period, divided by two, three and a half, three and a half. That last week of Daniel, the tribulation period, is to deal with the nation of Israel to get this restoration taken care of. Verse 17. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, you Gentiles, being a wild olive branch, or wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root but the root, Israel, that promises to the patriarchs, supports you. Olive tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel. I know everybody thinks the fig tree is. It's the olive tree. Olive trees are the mainstay of the agriculture and economy of the entire Mediterranean world. It was used as oil. It was used as fuel. It was used in the temple. And God even said so in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 11, The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with beautiful fruit and form spoke to the nation through the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Hosea, chapter 14, verse 6. His young shoots will grow, his splendor will be like an olive tree. Spoken again of the nation of Israel. Okay, let's follow the context. Verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off. In other words, Israel was set aside. Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. I can't help but stop for just a moment on that. It's easier than you think to get haughty in theology. It's easy to just look at our own group in our own country and become very isolationistic and create a whole theology around our little group. If you don't travel much, if you don't see Israel, you don't see nations and missions, etc., it's very easy just to see uh, American culture in the eyes of theology. Example, there's a whole theology developed by the Aryan nations. The chosen race, they say, is the white Anglo-Saxon. And they just look at their group and they close in their prejudice against Jewish people, black people, etc. They only see the plan for them. And it's, it's a wicked and horrible theology. There's the faith movement theology. And if you've never traveled outside of America and you think well, this is what the world is like, 
it's easy to get haughty and develop a faith theology. You can have the best house, the biggest car. And God wants you all to be very wealthy and have abundance of resources. But if you go look at other Christians in the real world, most of the world, who are still suffering what our brothers and sisters did in the first several centuries of Christianity, that theology will not fly. So he brings that thought in. Okay, well said. Yeah, okay, the Jewish people have been grafted, so you Gentiles could be brought in. Well said, but don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Now, understand he's not saying, he's going to kick you out, you're going to hell, because his whole point is he's going to graft them back in. There's going to be a restoration. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue, or if they, yeah, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, or cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree. This is a familiar practice, by the way, in the Middle East. Still is. Olive trees can last a long time. Uh, if you ever go with us to the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, I'll point out an olive tree that they think is about 1,800 years old. They live on and on a couple millennia. They just kind of grow outward, and the middle part gets hollowed out. They grow and they grow. The problem is, the longer they grow and they survive, they become less fruitful. They still grow, but they become less fruitful. So a common practice to make them fruitful again is to take young olive tree branches, cut them off, cut a piece of bark out of the original olive tree, tie it in really well, and it'll start producing again. So the branches that are unproductive are cut off. The ones that are productive are grafted in. Common practice. And that's what we read at the beginning. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 21? Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation that is bearing the fruits of it. Okay, great. God has done a wonderful thing. He's opened the door and brought the Gentiles in. However, don't boast. Don't boast against the tree. The tree supports us. The roots support us, not us the tree. That's why a Christian cannot be anti-Semitic. It is absolutely inconsistent. We have to see God's plan for the nation of Israel, bringing us the scriptures, the prophets, the Messiah, and be grateful in godly, holy fear. That's his point. So when you look back at the Crusades and the Inquisition, the church has to blush because of what the church did in the name of Jesus Christ to Jewish people. Kill a Jew and save your soul, they said. The Crusades were going throughout the Middle East. Soldiers were instructed, if you could kill a pregnant Jewish mother with a child still inside the womb, you would actually gain more indulgences. But according to Paul, there's no room at all in our thinking for anti-Semitism, but grateful that God chose this channel. So Israel was rejected. God opened the door to the Gentiles. God is mainly dealing with us now. But God will come and graft them in again. It says God is able to do that. When will he do it? Great tribulation period. The 70th week of Daniel. 
called the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. God will do a great work, and 144,000 will be sealed and protected by God during the tribulation period and brought into the millennium. Now, I, I really wanted to get into why we need a millennium. I mean, we talk about a millennium, and, and the question would be, if you think far enough about this, you'd say, what's the point? Why would you need a literal millennium? I mean, why, why not just save people when the end's over, it's over, and just bring us into the eternal state, the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem? Why this thousand years? Why do we need one? We don't have enough time to develop that. We'll do it next time. But we do want to get ahead and look at verse 25. And we'll close with this. For I do not, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. That's why we've spent so long a time. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The NIV renders it a little more accurately in this verse. The full number of the Gentiles has come in. It indicates that God knows a specific number of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, the rest of the world besides the Jews, who will receive Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, as their Savior. And when that time is up, at that time, God will then turn to work with the blindness that has happened to Israel. When that full number of Gentiles comes in, and I believe, personally, that's when the rapture of the church happens. The full number of Gentiles are brought in. The last person saved before this tribulation happens and God deals with the blindness of the nation of Israel. That full number is brought in. God then turns his prophetic time clock to the 70th week of Daniel, deals with the Jewish people, tribulation begins, etc. There's more to be said on this. There is not enough time. Let me see this as we close. God knows who the last one is. We don't. You might be it. I'm always aware of that in any meeting that I bring a gospel message in, that someone in that auditorium or in that setting may be that last person holding everybody back. You know that God's waiting for that number. There's the last one. Anytime the angels are going to blow that trumpet. And so maybe this is one of the reasons it's always incumbent on me to preach the gospel. To give people an opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ. Because God has a plan for the world, for the nation of Israel, and for you individually. There's nothing greater than understanding what that plan is. And part of that plan includes being grafted in. Part of that plan includes receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, Messiah. And then being used by God until that last person is brought in if you're not it. It's a glorious thought, isn't it? Somewhere, sometime, there'll be that one person who raises his hand or comes forward or bows his or her head and prays that prayer and says, Lord, Jesus, be my Savior. <laughs> like that. And then that 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's trouble, begins. There's a lot of future yet to cover. At any moment, I believe the Lord can come back for his church. We should be ready. Are you ready? Your bag's packed. 
Then there will be a seven-year period on the earth. It'll start out in relative peace. It'll turn bad. A dictator will come, figure it all out, be hailed as Messiah. The world's more ready for that than any other time before. The Jews will rebuild their temple with his aid. He'll break the covenant, persecute the Jews. God seals 144,000. All hell and judgment breaks loose upon the earth as most of mankind is destroyed by unusual judgments described by Jesus as the worst time in human history. Nothing could be close to it. And then at the high mark of all that, Jesus returns to the earth to stop it all as the world converges upon the nation of Israel to destroy it. The kingdom age is ushered in. After the kingdom age, there's a rebellion. We'll touch a little bit about next week. Then the eternal state. The earth is destroyed. A new heaven and a new earth is brought in. And folks, if that doesn't mean what it says it means, if that's not literal, then I have no idea what it means. If that's not what it means, then I don't know what it means, and you know what? You don't know what it means. Because if it's figurative, it's up to anybody else to put a figurative attachment to it. It's a metaphor of this. No, I think it's a metaphor of that. And you have 15,000 different interpretations if it's not what it says it is. I think it's best to take the Bible literally and to believe that there is a time coming when Jesus will set up his kingdom on the earth. And I've got to tell you, he has to. He has to.